Hey everyone, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Jackie. I'm Zach, and we are very excited to have Professor Amy Whitaker joining us today. Amy Whitaker is an author, artist, and entrepreneur who is currently an assistant professor of visual arts management at NYU's Steinhardt School of Culture, Education, and Human Development. She teaches at the intersection of business, creativity, and everyday life, and thinks that art and business are both vital to democracy. Professor Whitaker, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. I'm really glad to be here. So let's dive right into that last statement, that art and business are both vital to democracy. What, is, what does that mean? Yeah, no, it's a great question. So I actually believe this, and I believe this before our current political climate got turned upside down, right. wh whatever your politics are definite inversion. Mm -hmm. I think that art is a field that can be defined much, much more broadly as a proxy for independent thinking. And that independent thinking is the greatest lever of power in any democracy. The fact that people have their own thoughts and continue to have their own thoughts and ideally discuss them with other people. So I actually studied political science. I know Claremont McKenna is like hotbed of political science and economics. That was my undergraduate major. So my, my first love as a college student was constitutional law. Oh, awesome. But I also happened to paint and draw and spend a lot of time in art classes. And sometimes you're in art classes where the conversation is amazing. And sometimes you're in art classes where you're like, why doesn't everyone read more sections of the newspaper? <laughs> and so I just thought a lot about the applications of art far outside things that are literally art, like paintings and drawings. And so I think art is a process in any area of life. But I also think that we live in one of the most vast, complex market economies of all time. And so that's the backdrop. That's the ocean we all swim in mm -hmm. and have to build boats in. And um, so I think those things go together. And what's interesting is there's this kind of paradox uh, between art and the market that the market makes it hard to invent things creatively in the short term, but depends on that in the long term. Mm. So you, yeah, that's, that's what you're always riddling. Mm. So can you give us maybe a more con concrete example of how you um, saw art as like a, a, a vehicle for political expression or for independent thinking that you talk about? Um, well, the most concrete example I can give you is from the deep vault, which is that when I was an undergrad, I was a student government nerd and mm -hmm. I was co-president of the College Council wow. at Williams College. And the prime minister of Singapore received a really contentious honorary degree from Williams at Williams okay. uh, because they had tremendous economic progress, but very questionable civil liberties policies. And so they're the college's liberal arts values were at stake. So I invited two professors to stage debates on both sides hmm. and Xerox stacks of, and this is the 90s, Xerox stacks of articles and distributed them so people could form their own opinion. But then my inner kindergarten teacher artist, I went to the fabric store down the road and bought probably 300 squares of white felt like the okay. kind you usually buy with a glue gun and a bedazzler, sure. except cut them into squares and people put them on top of their mortar boards. And so that if you looked out at the convocation ceremony, there are these squares of white everywhere, kind of um, puncturing the ritual space. Um, so I think that anytime you're you're showing up and forming an opinion, I mean, I, I think that actually 1776, the foundation of the United States is an art project. Okay. I think almost anything is an art project. So what did what did the white squares on the um on the They hats? were they were a way of silently showing a degree of protest while also 
paying respect. Uh, white is a color of mourning in a lot of Asian cultures. Okay. Right. Um, so in your work, I know you talk a lot about inventing point B. So in this story that you just talked about, um, would you say that going out, getting these felt uh, white pieces of fabric was just like an impulse you had that was inventing point B or is that something else entirely? Like <laughs> no, you it's, were... all, it's all related. I okay. mean, I think, yeah, I, when I say independent thinking, I just mean anytime you're trying to do something you don't have a template for. So it can be really every day or it can be a big, bold gesture. And anytime you're trying to do something that you haven't done before. So the idea of art, I wrote this book called Art Thinking that I get to talk about tonight yeah. at the mm -hmm. Athenaeum. I'm really excited. Anytime you're doing something that isn't just going from A to B, but inventing point B, I think there's an element of your kind of creative humanity at stake and that that to me represents what art is. And that actually the whole idea that it has to be big and bold to me is part of this myth of artistic genius that we mm. see other people's amazing accomplishments after the fact and we forget that they were kind of in the weeds at the moment that they were doing them. Yeah. So, um, Another interesting part about your career or your history is that you so you graduated from Williams College, as you said, um, with a degree in economics or political science. Um, political science political and science. studio art. And studio art. Okay, sure. So an interesting combo Just to there. Keep it weird. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, definitely. that's awesome. That's like literally <laughs> so cool. <laughs> I did take one economics class. Okay. And I do teach economics now, but I have I have studied it a lot since. Right. And then and then you got an MBA. I did. And you now um, and then a master's of arts or uh, mm -hmm. art master's of finance from a master's of fine arts fine from fine arts. yeah in painting so okay. like me with a paintbrush that yeah. kind of degree yeah. so what what most people would consider like opposite ends of the spectrum at least in like like earning potential right yeah how do you and a lot of your work is focused on the business behind art can you um, talk more about that what that experience yeah. was like super weird would be the um, the shorthand yeah. so. <laughs> Uh, I, I got an MFA after an MBA for really personal reasons, mm -hmm. and I was probably just as atypical an MBA student in the first place. I went to enroll in business school directly from the education department of the Guggenheim Museum. Okay. I happened to be a math nerd when I was younger, and when I... And I just didn't really understand. Like, honestly, you seem, Zach, like you understand so much more about the working world than I probably do right now, <laughs> but definitely than I did in my 20s. And so... Um, I, I just didn't really understand what a job was exactly. And I mean, I was super hardworking, but all those practical considerations of I'm going to go spend my two years in an analyst role in a bank, like I just didn't, I didn't get that math. Sure. Um, my mother's a medievalist. I don't know. Okay. My father's a research scientist. I don't know if that's related or unrelated. Yeah. My siblings are much more practical, but, um, when I, when I got the MBA, I wanted to be a museum manager and then a lot of things happened in my personal life. Um, that explain the set of decisions. I was supposed to be a management consultant and the job was deferred and rescinded. My father died suddenly and then 9-11 happened two weeks later. So I just, sometimes wow. you have personal life events that um, they're destabilizing and sad, but they also open up a certain kind of possibility that you couldn't have found otherwise. Mm -hmm. And so I felt cut off from my creative self and I decided really, let's be honest, without a lot of thought to the opportunity cost economic analysis, yeah. but as a form of investment in my future, not as a form of consumption of just spending two fun years in mm. an MFA program, I decided to do that. And then afterward, 
I had this period that I refer to affectionately as the wilderness years of narrative incoherence. Wow. Because I spent a lot of time, you know, I would show up for dinner with my investment banker friends and I'd look down at my hands and my fingernails would be blue from painting. Or I would have to wear a suit to the art studio because I was going somewhere. And so it was this interesting kind of chameleon moment of parsing my own professional identity and noticing mm -hmm. everybody else's. But after a while, I started to think that what was really weird was that we didn't have more language, that everyone was dealing with what I was dealing with just in a different way. Like I was far ends of the twister board, but most people had a financial working life and a duty bound sense of analysis and getting things done and being practical, but also a creative life. And I'm lucky to know lots of people who are amazingly creative, but happen to work in business. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to find language to put all of that together. So after when you went to get your MFA at the University College of London, um, did you also find that there were maybe artists who had an interest in business as well, like you were finding in your <laughs> MBA or what? not really? Were they kind of averse to that? And then what made you think like, oh, maybe I could give them some insight on how the business world works? Yeah, so there are a lot of artists who don't like business. They're afraid of it or they think it's a set of rules that's being forced on them. Yeah. Some of those people also secretly want to be rich and famous, but don't admit it. And then some of them are just trying to get on with their work and they don't like having to deal with that. Um, there are also artists who are incredibly deft commercial operators. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of like the Damien Hirsts and the Jeff Koons of the world who kind of perform the market and happen to make yeah. art objects at the same time. Um, what happened was when I was in school, we had to give these talks about the ideas behind your art. And I gave a talk about what art had to do with business and politics. And I showed this clean tech company that was then called Ocean Power Technologies that had these yo-yo buoys attached to turbines on the floor of the ocean that would harness wave power. Nice. And I was like, this is amazing. It's so creative. But the startup cost is buried in a 30-year amortization. How do you parse that when it's creative and socially useful but not profitable? Like, how do you navigate that? And so I, I explained the time value of money to a room full of art students. And I just want to say, I just to set the stage, I went in line to give the talk behind a guy who was playing the ukulele wearing a Saddam Hussein rubber mask and a woman who was talking about family to an extent that made her cry. So wow. like I was definitely an outlier yeah. in that moment. But they were, they were really game and I got invited to give lunchtime talks. So I basically explained the conceptual basis of the market economy to my classmates and it was incredibly fun because they would take it apart from first principle. They'd be like, Amy, what happens if we do away with all the banks? And I was like, I have no idea. Great question. Yeah. Hold on. So, so I, if there's one word that I'm thinking of to describe you from what you've told us, it's eccentric. Um, <laughs> Thank is, you, Zach. Yeah, and, 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 in the best and, way possible, yeah, really of course. No, of course. Um, like a, a huge variety of interests you mentioned, like math nerd when you're growing up. You do art. You love um, the well. It seems like you love the market economy. Um, when you were growing up, what did that look like? Did you think that you would ever end up in a career like this? Or like you, you said your mother is a, um, a historian, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. And your father's a researcher. Um, mm -hmm. That seems like a um, sort of a different environment to grow up in. Um, did that have any influence on what you do now? Um, no, it's a really fair question. So the idea of being eccentric, I totally see how it, it looks like that kind of, you know, island of misfit toys. Mm -hmm. Um, as a collection of career attributes. If I could say one thing related to that, that 
I think everyone should have, if, if you ask my advice, is there's a piece of it that's skepticism and curiosity. So I think what I'm trying to say is that it's fantastic to study economics and politics and to learn the systems and to engage your rigorous scientific analytic brain. But I also think it's really important to cultivate skepticism around the edges and curiosity and just that little pocket of space mm. for, for kind of what if to, to trust your analytic self and the solidity of your kind of skeletal structure as an analytic person enough mm -hmm. to also engage with your own creativity. And I think this matters a lot because, you know, you go to college, you have to invest a lot in your education. You're thinking about getting your money's worth in a job after college. And I'm trying to say to people, you know what, all of us, our education, our careers, our lives, they're all art projects. Like it or not, we're inventing point B all the time. Because even if you follow the template, the world itself is going to change. There's going to be more gig economy. There are these huge technological platforms like the blockchain that are going to change the way people own things. And there'll be automation. A lot of analytic roles will get replaced um, by computers uh, or automation of other kinds. And so I, I'm just trying to say that that creativity, that's that pocket of side eccentricity matters because it might be what actually animates your analytic self in the future. Mm -hmm. So in terms of how I grew up, I was one of those jack of all trades people. Um, I'm a middle child. I'm a synthesizer. I'm like a human Venn diagram. I was trying to make sense of space between things. And so I think that's how I ended up with, you know, the two far circles of the larger Venn diagram, art and business. I'm really a political science person. Okay. I really think about art and business as conversations that people are radically disenfranchised from and conversations that actually matter. Mm. So it's me trying to pull people into their creative selves for people to believe that they have something to offer that's of value, mm. um, that's particular to them. Um, and to not not like dive into the mess and start being late all the time and be irresponsible, but to just have that little bit of space for mess um, and humanity. Um, I'm just curious um, to find this space for mess and for creativity and for what you say is humanity. Um, what role do you think uh, colleges can take in you know cultivating that? And not only colleges, but high schools and elementary schools and middle schools? I know that's like a really big question, but do you think there <laughs> no, is no. space I, I have um, I have two answers to it. And spoiler alert, I'm talking about this tonight. <laughs> so, you know, the STEM to STEAM movement, which is about the inclusion of art in science, technology, uh, engineering, and math. I'm starting to see initiatives in colleges, but also I think these would translate to high school where art isn't a discipline, but a container for interdisciplinary thinking and okay. for kind of um, the second part of what I would say, which is art is also really, to me, it's, um, you know, there's, you can think of the idea of call and response or asking a question and then answering it. You spend a lot of your education just answering questions. And mm. um, there are a couple of other people who write about this. One of them is a guy called uh, William Derezowitz or Bill Derezowitz. He wrote a book called Excellent Sheep mm -hmm. about the idea that people at these top colleges and universities are getting trained to be a champion world-class hoop jumpers where they can answer any question you put in front of them, but they can't ask the question. Mm -hmm. So I think pedagogically, art is very aligned with helping people go through template, templated learning and 
perfect ways of answering questions, but also be able to take risks to answer weird questions or to ask the trust themselves that they're asking the right question and then answer it. That mm -hmm. kind of independent inquiry, which is very common in the sciences if you have to develop a you know basic science research career. But to me, that's what art is about. And and your definition of art is not like like making a sketch or like making a painting, right? It's it's broader than that. Can you talk about yeah, so when I was in art school, so, you know, MBA in hand, figuratively speaking, I used to always ask this question, um, if Leonardo da Vinci were alive today, what would he be doing? Would he be, like, hanging out with us while these, like, I, I was the least cool person in art school, I think you can tell, uh, you know, these super cool kids and they're like three quarter top sneakers smoking a cigarette outside by this giant pale pink Slade sign <laughs> at the UCL. I'm like, would Leonardo da Vinci be hanging out with us or would he be in some other domain, you know, wearing the mock turtleneck on the Apple stage or something else? And so I ask people this question and they're like, and what do you guys think if Leonardo da Vinci would be alive today? What would he be doing? Uh, I don't think he'd want to waste his time probably just hanging out in front of his art <laughs> class like i'm sure he'd have other things to do some inventions to work on in his whatever space he liked to right, work right. In. yeah create creating something probably yeah. i would yeah, imagine i think i love that answer that's what i feel like he would be doing he'd be figuring stuff out and i think figuring stuff out sometimes someone else has given you the brief or the question but what leonardo did so much was ask the question himself and then try to figure it out. And yeah. it's that, that I, it's kind of like you're throwing the ball down the field to force yourself to run and catch it. And I see so many people, such brilliant minds spend so much time and use such beautiful analytic skills to answer questions that don't matter. Mm -hmm. And I want people to not do that. I, I mean, we all have to do it some of the time, but you know, it's easy to shape uh, the work you do to something you're sure that you can answer um, because the data is available or otherwise. And I just think it's important. Again, it's a, it's a portfolio approach. You don't have to spend your whole life doing it, but around the margins, it's very empowering uh, and usually will set you up for a way more interesting, higher art career to be able to ask those questions and to kind of think about the bigger picture around your work. Yeah, that that's a... Uh... That's a really interesting perspective for sure. Like a lot different than I think a lot of what we get, which is a lot of um, like it's it's the tension that you talk about between like the analytical side that wants to play it safe and then the creative side that um, everyone might express in some way, but is you think is much more important than we might give credence yeah. to. You know, just to sound like a total economist, which I'm not. I mean, I always feel like I'm wearing a costume when I teach like utility or something. Uh, I do think it's a decision on the margin. I think the, the marginality is really, really important. So it's not about being a business person all the time or an artist all the time. It's about with nuance and humanity, perceiving the situation that you find yourself in and then figuring out when it's right to have a little creativity here or, you know, a little analysis here. Um, because I think, I mean, I have huge admiration. Like my, my brother and my sister are amazing business people and I have and in very different ways. And I, I hugely admire that, but I also think that, you know, it's fun to watch them be really creative about their work too. Mm. Um, and I also think when you look at the way that large companies, everything from Uber to Goldman Sachs to Amazon, when you see the impact that large companies have in the world, 
Um, and especially if you look at something like 2008, I feel like there were all these smart analysts somewhere like Goldman Sachs who were sent away in a room to solve a problem. And they solved it in the best possible way, but they didn't think about what would happen when all those solutions were put together and what the impact of that would be societally or what the overall risk of that would be. Mm -hmm. And so to me, that that margin of creative energy on the side is about that. It's about kind of seeing the bigger picture and impact of value creation. Um, well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have. Thank you again, Professor Whitaker. Or sorry, we, we always conclude with one question. You can also call me Amy. Okay. Okay. Sure. You already called me eccentric, so you can definitely call me Amy. <laughs> um, the, the final question we ask is, what is your personal definition of success? And when... Um, for students who are listening or for anyone who's listening, what advice would you give them to pursue that? Um, what is my personal definition of success? So one of the main ideas in the art thinking book is that there's a perception bias between how we experience creative work from the inside and how we see it in other people from the outside. So like I see your work when you've finished it and it's beautiful and complete. And I see my work when it's messy and the bumper of my car is held on with duct tape, figuratively speaking, and I'm in the weeds and I don't know if I can do something. So I think that it's hard to know what success looks like, because if you if you look at your own success, sometimes you're seeing your own experience from the outside. You know, you're kind of at 30,000 feet looking at, at yourself. And so I think that... Um, I try to embrace um, process-based definitions of success, and I try to have a gratitude practice and to put that in place of thinking about success. Because for me, um, that there's a kind of um, judgmentalness that I struggle with when I think about defining success. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, you don't want to succeed at a point in time. You want to be awake at the wheel of your life the whole time. And you're going to have ups and downs. And sometimes you're going to think something is a great success that was really, you know, base camp on the way to somewhere else. And sometimes you're going to think it's an abject failure. And it really wasn't. Um, you know, Winston Churchill, that guy got stone cold fired before he became savior of the free world. And, you know, everyone from Elvis Presley to Michael Jordan has a story of, of early failure. And so I, I think what's most important, what constitutes success the most is, is doing the work that you think really matters or asking the questions you think really matter and uh, holding on to the honor and nobility and dignity of, of doing that. Um, and then kind of showing up in the world as, as a person, you know, you'd like the world to have more of. Mm. Yeah. Thank you for that. Thank you so much. Yeah. So as, as we said before, um, that's all the time we have today. You can find Amy's book on Amazon. It's called Art Thinking, How to Carve Out Creative Space in a World of Schedules, Budgets, and Bosses. And to all the listeners out there, remember to stay hungry.